Hello and welcome to DNI Spy, the weekly podcast which uncovers what's really going on in the world of diversity and inclusion. I'm Dr. Julie Humphreys. And I'm Natasha Whitehurst. And in today's episode, we're going to be exploring the recent debate in the UK Parliament, which was about amending or keeping the definition of sex in the Equality Act of 2010. And we are joined by award-winning barrister and author Robin Moira White. Robin became the first barrister to transition from male to female in practice at the Discrimination Bar in 2011. She practices in all aspects of employment and discrimination law and lectures regularly on the area, including transgender rights, in which she's appeared in a number of notable cases. A huge welcome, Robin. Uh, Welcome. Great to have you with us today. Fabulous. So we're going to um, kick straight off, if that's okay, Robin. Um, so this week in Westminster, um, two electronic petitions were con- considered, and they both related to the definition of sex in the Equality Act 2010. Um, one petition calls on the government to update the Equality Act 2010 to make the characteristic of sex refer to biological sex, and the other petition calls on the government to commit to not amending the Act's definition of sex. So, first, before we get into those two petitions, can you, Robin, just tell us a little bit about how a debate like this can happen? How did we get to this point uh, as a general term? Indeed. Well, there's a facility for any citizen of the UK who thinks that the UK Parliament should debate something to start a petition on a government website. And if you get to 10,000 signatures, effectively, the government will respond. They they will answer what you've asked. And if it gets to 100,000, then they will arrange a debate not usually in the House of Commons itself, but as occurred this week, there's a debating chamber off Westminster Hall, uh, which some people would have um, been familiar with in terms of the Queen's lying in state. So it's a sort of central area in the Palace of Westminster. And there's a debating chamber off to the side of that where citizens' petitions tend to get debated. And that's what happened this Monday. And that debate, um, so if we think about it, so it happened this week, what was the debate about and who was involved? Okay, so the Equality Act, which is our piece of legislation that deals with discrimination in the workplace, in the supply of goods and services, in schools, in sports, a number of other areas, has nine separate protected characteristics, race, age, disability, Uh, And one of them is sex. And such a little word, but um, how do you actually define it? And the uh, Equality Act doesn't actually define it itself. It has some fairly circular definitions. So it says um, uh, it goes around the houses because it ends up back with male and female, and they aren't defined either. Now, most people... It's one of those things where most people standing in the street would think they could define sex. But to complicate that, we have transgender people who say that they wish to live effectively in uh, the what for them from where they started is an opposite or different gender or sex. And gender and sex are to some extent muddled together. People have uh, used the words interchangeably. Mm. And that's uh, for... Some people think that's not very helpful in something like the Equality Act. My view is that that we are a complicated society 
uh, it, it would be very easy to have a very simple society if we wound the clock backwards to the 1800s where women didn't have the vote, women couldn't own property or whatever. So we had a society that was essentially male. Mm. Well, what we decided was to say, well, women need to have rights, need to have the vote, be able to own property, whatever. And so all our laws that, that dealt with property ownership, for example, had to be updated to take into account the fact that women could own property or women could vote or women could be MPs. And in the latter part of the 20th century, We've included anti-discrimination legislation that deals with people of different sexual orientations, age, disability, whatever. And as each of those protected characteristics is brought in, it, it makes the world a little more complicated. And the the interaction between gender reassignment and sex means that in some cases, some people would regard themselves of, as a particular sex and other people wouldn't. And so there is a... Uh, a clash between how some people would like sex in the Equality Act to be interpreted and how other people would like it to be interpreted. Okay, so it's so so it's kind of the the sex and the gender and the kind of the the, the differentiator of the two and looking for kind of more clarity. So I guess why then has it got to that debate stage? What's then taking it to that kind of next level, do you think? Well, it's all very well saying clarity, but the problem with clarity is yeah. that what you can end up doing is excluding people or forcing people down a particular line. Yeah. So if we were to say, as the, uh, now the, the first of the two petitions says that they, they would like, uh, the petitioners would like sex clarified as biological sex okay. in the Equality Act. And if you go down that route, then you could end up in a position where you exclude, imagine the female facilities for a moment, so you exclude trans women from using fe female facilities that, that trans women have used for 20 years or so without great difficulty. Now, yes, you could have clarity, but what you do is exclude a group. And potentially you cause difficulty because there are trans men, so people who were born female who've transitioned. Trans men often look very masculine because they've taken testosterone for a long period of time. And if you had simple clarity, you could end up forcing trans men to use female facilities. So you have very male looking people, you would be saying should be using the female facilities. So it's all very well asking for clarity. But what you can do is produce problems and ambiguities by doing that way and by not recognizing that people are, uh, are there, there is ambiguity in the way people live their life, there is complexity in the way that people live their life. The Equality Act deals with some of that. Uh, take sport, for example, that's been very controversial. Yeah. So there is a view held by some people that people who've um, been born male or have been through male puberty should not be competing in female sports. And what the Equality Act says is that where there's a gender-affected sport, so if it's tiddlywinks or equestrianism, plainly that's about the strength of the horse uh, or the tiddlywink, not the person. If it's boxing or hurdling or whatever, where um, the gender might affect that sport, the law says that there are two proper reasons for excluding a trans person or somebody who has a trans background, safety and fair competition. But you have to justify that. The, the, person, the, the sports organisation having to do that would have to justify the exclusion. Now, if the petitioners got their way, 
you would start from a position of exclusion so that if the if it was a female sporting event if you had been born male you were out from the start there's no nuance so whereas uh, a sporting organization currently can think that through and can say should we apply those um derogations should we be able to discriminate against a group mm. and say you can't compete at the moment there is nuance and the ability to think that through and the ability to make a reasoned decision what the first petitioners want is a bar and and no thinking and that the the people who raised the second petition so the first petition took quite a number of months to get its 100 and in the 800,000 it got to 109,000 when it was realized that that petition was going to get to 100,000 the people who have a different view and say well the existing position might be complex might be difficult in some areas but allows the nuance and dealing with people properly and fairly they got to 138,000 signatures and in fact put on 100,000 signatures over the first bank holiday long bank holiday weekend in may very quickly so that reflected the fact that there is uh, a body of opinion who would want this change to be made and a body of opinion who don't think it's very sensible so so one so yeah julie go for it sorry no, no i was just going to ask for clarity um robin if you don't mind on one thing you just said you said um what's a proper reason is that a legal is there a legal definition of a proper yeah. reason or is that well in sport there are only two proper reasons it's either safety or it's fair competition and it's easy to take a particular area. The problem is if you're dealing with, say, the supply of goods and services or services, each service might be rather different or each particular circumstance you're dealing with might be different. And in those more general areas, then there's a different definition. What the Equality Act says is that you could exclude trans people. You can exclude. You don't have to, but you can if what you're doing is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. So if you just don't like trans people, that's not a legitimate aim. If you have a legitimate aim, let's say it's privacy or there's a service being provided like breast cancer screening where there's collective nudity, for example, then it might be proper to exclude someone. But what you have to do is find a proportionate means of achieving that legitimate aim. Uh, so it... It can't be, you're not going to provide any service, for example. So let's say that you had a trans woman who also needed breast screening. It would not be proportionate to say, we're not going to see you at all. But it might be proportionate to say, we'll see you at the end of a day, beginning of a day, a day on which we're not seeing anybody else. That might be proportionate. Um, and what those exceptions have been tested in other cases, other legal cases, and one of the principles is that you have to look for the, the least discriminatory way of achieving what you're trying to achieve. So, for example, if what you're dealing with is the need for privacy in changing rooms, for example, what you don't do is say, well, there's a third changing room, which is the trans people go and use the third changing room. and They are head off to their own little ghetto and they're excluded from everything else. Whereas if you said, there's a changing room for anyone who wants additional privacy, who is concerned about who they might meet in a collective changing room. 
that would be less discriminatory than saying a particular group has to use that particular room. And so I've certainly been involved in advising organisations that have been thinking that through. And you need to look at that, finding that less discriminatory way. And then finally, also, there's another principle is that you have to deal with things on a case-by-case basis. So think about the individual. If it's someone who transitioned in their teenage years and is now 20, 30 years later, I know some trans women who no one would have the slightest idea that they had a trans history. And if we're back to the breast screening example, it it wouldn't be on a case-by-case basis proportionate to tell them to come on a different day or be dealt with as part of a different group. Whereas if we've somebody who, um, like me, transitioned in later life, went through male puberty, has a deeper sounding voice, for example, um, it might be proportionate. It it might be um, right on a case-by-case basis to ask me to come the following morning, the end of the day, whatever. Whereas it wouldn't for someone, as I say, who was completely unobservably female, unobservably anything other than female. And, and thinking about this debate then this week, um, is it usual to have two opposing petitions debated at the same time? No, it's quite rare. I, I believe it's happened once before on something else. I, I'm not entirely sure what, mm. um, but I believe it, it. it's really quite unusual. Um, and there was the, the please don't do this petition. The second petition was sort of ticking away in the background quietly until the first petition, it was clear the first petition was going to get past its 100,000. And then virtually overnight, the people who um, take a different, take a stronger view about inclusion um, and, and the approach to diversity got behind the second petition and boosted it past its 100,000 to, I think there was a lot of, um, a lot of people had the opinion that there was a need to show that the people who who believe in exclusion as the appropriate way to deal with things um, were not in the ascendancy. And there was a need to show that. So I was just going to ask, um, is it usual then for those both of those petitions to be dis- discussed at the same time? It felt very, because I was watching online, um, and it felt very antagonistic and very full of conflict. And, it, and because I was so opposing, was it worth, you know, would it normally on one day let's discuss the one petition and the next day let's discuss was there a reason why we brought both sides together well i think there's an element of practicalities i mean it, it they are the, the two sides of, of um the same question and it, it would have been artificial presumably to have had if you'd only done one petition had one petition you would have had the people promoting it and the people opposing it then you've had the other petition and you've had the same lot of people but the other way around with one lot proposing and the other lot opposing. So you would have doubled work potentially. And the people who get to speak, of course, I mean, they have to be MPs. Yeah. And around, uh, I think just over 20, if you, if you take, take out of the equation, the party spokesman, because there was a party spokesman who introduces the debate and then the SNP, the liberal Labour, and conservative party all, uh, answer the debate at the end there are about 20 mps who spoke so you'd have to double all that effort so and i think for practicalities it, it's quite sensible it was quite a sensible thing it i don't think you'd have done anything to reduce the antagonism by having it done separately yet there are very 
deeply held, powerful views on both sides of the question. And um, some of that comes from people who help hold things deeply. And I'm afraid to say at the moment, some of it comes from elements of politics and the media who are, regard this as a useful political football. That's interesting. And you attended the event and I'd, oh, yes. I'd be... I'd be keen to hear about how how you kind of felt, how you experienced that, and and also the role that you maybe played in it. Well, I, I've been. Uh, I was asked to do some briefing of various people who spoke at the event in the week beforehand, um, because there are some technical issues, and we're talking about how a piece of legislation works, and therefore a number of people had come to me beforehand to understand my view of the technicalities of it. Um, I. Obviously, therefore, I was interested to go to the debate. And what I have to say, um, one of the people who who sits has a very different view from me. I, I tried to avoid talking about sides because I don't think that's very helpful when we're discussing things. But there's a lady called Helen Joyce um, who would be taken to have a very different view from me personally. But when we got to Westminster Hall, it was clear that there was only about 20 public seats in the committee room that the debate was being taken in. And Helen very kindly gave up her seat. I mean, being British, there's a queue and you get in depending on the queue. Um, and Helen very kindly gave up her seat to me. It was a, an, an alternative place to watch the debate. Um, but I think uh, I, it was sort of one, one to 19 um, in terms of people who took a particular view about things. But, but um Thank you to Helen for giving up her place to me. That was a very proper thing for her to do. So what were the interesting things for you that came out or the moments of that debate? I transitioned as you it introduced things in 2011, and that's, what, 12 years ago now? And trans was very much less controversial 12 years ago. Um. What I'm afraid to say is I heard quite a lot of speeches, and it's not it's not quite Labour has one view, Conservative has another view, but it tends to be a more Conservative view in support of the first petition and a more Labour view against it. And there are exceptions on both sides. So it, it's wrong to say that that's absolute. I, I have to say what I am unhappy about is that a lot of what's being said is very like what I, I mean, I'm, I've been in practice nearly 30 years. And I, so my practice started at a time when Section 28 was still in place and gay people were not as well supported as they are now. And in those days, it was very common and you would see newspapers printing something along the lines of, we can't have gay men as primary school teachers because they're after your children. And now it, it, you can't say that now, other than in, recounting history and what i'm disappointed to see is a lot of uh we need to exclude trans people because there's a risk to women and girls from trans people there's a risk to women and girls from uh, from men potentially in um acting in inappropriate ways the, the number of trans people is tiny relative to the number of of cisgendered men tiny relative to the number of um, uh, cisgendered lesbians, for example. I mean, actually, in fact, if you do the number, one of the things that we've seen in the US where an equivalent to the, 
first petition has been passed, and, and they were known as bathroom bills in the US, where there was exclusion about who could use which bathroom in a public space, and it led to people challenged, being challenged. And the people who were generally subject to challenge were cisgender butch lesbians. And there are 50, 40 or 50 times as many of those in the population as there are trans people. Uh, and so they were the people who were being subject to challenge. They, they were perhaps gender non-conforming. People were thinking that the person with, you know, short iron grey hair uh, and steel spectacles wearing trousers and boots was, was a man in the ladies. And it, yeah. it wasn't. It was a butch lesbian. And there was certainly a number of those occasions. So it's disappointing to me that that is still the uh, presentation that a, a number of people are giving in terms of the reason to justify these difficulties. I'd accept that there are, it, if that's what the science says in elite sport, for example, if we need to separate male and female sport, there may be a case for it as long as the evidence supports it. Mm. But to suggest that there's a case there's a case to exclude me from Sainsbury's loo on a Saturday morning mm. because um, cisgendered men are, you know, uh, do horrible things to women on occasion. Is mm. pulls against everything I know and think of about equality, diversity, and inclusion. You um you you touched on a number of things there, and um we said at the top, you know, this podcast is about bringing things back to basics. So there's three, three things I just want to clarify and just kind of, um, explain in more detail. So you refer to section 28 in, I, I, in your own words, can you just bring that to life? What is the sec, what is section 28 and what does that refer okay. to? So at the time of Margaret Thatcher being prime minister, um, I, I can't actually remember section 28, which act because it's yeah. a long time ago, but Legislation was passed that said that effectively public bodies should not promote homosexuality. And so it meant that um, councils and, and other public bodies could not do things that said gay people should be a part of society in just the same way as everybody else. And it, um, to, to slightly to the shame of the Labour Party, it took some time into the Blair government before that was repealed and before gay people were able to be celebrated like any other slice of society. Uh, and it, we know it's important for minorities to be uh, supported and for leaders in business, for example, to say that more minorities in their business are supported and to find ways for people to do their religious observance, perhaps, you know, around work and those sort of things that make people welcome in in society generally and that was the problem with section 28 awesome thank you for clarifying the other the second um term is you referred to cisgender men and cisgender women can you again do this something similar for us yeah it's a term that comes from latin um the original i think the oldest use of it um if you the, the romans had um uh, cisalpine Gaul and transalpine Gaul, and cis means on the same side of. So cisalpine Gaul was the, the part of um, the sort of fr French area that was the same side of the Alps as Rome, and that's what we now call Switzerland, actually. And trans transalpine Gaul was the bit of France that was the other side of the Alps from Rome. So trans means across, and so the two words are they balance. So you've trans or cis. Trans means 
cross from. Cysmine's on the same side as. They're more commonly used these days in chemistry, where side chains on chemical molecules can either be on the same side as each other or on the opposite side of each other. And it's commonly used, particularly by trans people, as a way of referring to people who are not trans. In exactly the same way, I'm part of my practice is um, uh, neurodiversity disability cases. And um, people with autism tend to refer to the rest of us as neurotypical. So there's a word for the rest of everybody else. Yeah. But you do have to use this with a, a, a modicum of care because not everybody likes being called cisgendered. Sure. So particularly the people amongst the people who were promoting petition one that we've been talking about, a number of those would object to that. They would say, for example, that the word woman is not divisible. Okay. So that um, a, a, they would probably also say that a trans woman was not a woman, whereas trans people would say trans woman is two words like black woman or gay woman. Yeah. You have to be careful, and particularly what I do when I'm in court arguing a case with these competing views, you have to be careful of language because what you don't want to be doing is using language that, that causes everybody to trip up every second or two. Sure. And there are ways of referring to people which will trigger people in, in the case. Okay. Um, and so one needs to be a little careful about using cis mm -hmm. because some people don't like the word cis. Sure. No, that makes sense. Thank you. You'll be glad to know my third one. Um, you you said butch lesbian. Mm. How how do you define butch lesbian? Well, there are um, an infinite variety of lesbians, but they tend to split into two groups. Okay. Uh, there are lesbians who present in a more feminine way, um, and there are some, you know, very feminine lesbians who um, work as models and goodness knows what. But there are equally um, there is a tradition amongst lesbianism that some lesbians present in what's known in the lesbian community as butch, and they t that tends to be a more masculine presentation, shorter hair, uh, more masculine-looking clothes, that sort of thing. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, I'll just, I was just wondering, as you're explaining those terms, because um, we've and you were talking about language, and we, I mean we get a lot of questions around language and we're asked to do episodes around language a lot. And when we look at our listening sort of figures, the one, the episodes that we talk about language are really um, sort of have high listeners to them and, and, and grow. And I, I just wondered if, if you've over the last few years that you've seen a change, you've been in, in sort of in law for 30 years, what sort of change have you seen around language over that time? I think there's been an appreciation that language makes a difference. I mean, in the book, um, thank you for mentioning it in the introduction, uh, with a, a fellow member of Chambers, I wrote a book called A Practical Guide to Transgender Law. Mm. And we very deliberately have a glossary at the start of that. So, I mean, there are words like stealth and passing um, and those kind of words that have special technical meanings in the transgender area for example that you might not know might not know mm. um the protected characteristic related to trans people is gender reassignment now a number of trans people for example don't like the word reassignment they certainly don't like the word transsexual because it it has connotations of sex 
Mm. Um, and and so some trans people don't like. That's why we often shorten it to trans as opposed to transsexual. Um, but equally, trans people don't like the word reassignment because they say that all they're doing is dealing with the, the difficult bits that don't really match with their identity. And so, for example, it's much more common now to refer to gender confirmation surgery rather than gender reassignment surgery and much, much more acceptable to a wider trans community. So, yeah, it, and I think uh, in our book, we recommend that when we're trying a case that there's a discussion about language at the start of the case because otherwise you can be merrily barreling on with a case and then you hit a piece of language that somebody finds difficult or offensive or perhaps even doesn't understand. But um, if you've dealt with those things at the start and you clear those issues out of the way and you get on with the active case. Mm, and true. the same thing can happen in the workplace, that if you're learning how to, to um, practically be inclusive for somebody, then... One of the other things I always say is that it's not for the person who's transitioning or it's not for the person. If we, we take a non-transition example, it's not for the disabled person to be teaching the employer about their disability. It's for the employer to go out and do some work themselves. And the same would be true of trans or any of the other protected characteristics. And and there was a, just changing tack slightly, there was a, a lot of discussion over the past 12 24 months in scotland around self-id do you have any views on that i have professional views and i have personal views which would you like um uh, if you could give both that would be great but if whatever you're comfortable with right well the, what's said is that um the current process to uh change one's gender which was introduced in the 2004 gender recognition act which requires you to, to collect a body of evidence and submit it to a panel and effectively have the panel choose whether that body of evidence is sufficient for society to agree that you can be granted a gender recognition certificate and therefore recognised in your new gender. Uh, that's the situation we have at the moment. Now, a number of states, Ireland, California, one or two other places around the world, Malta originally, now have a process called self-ID where there's usually some degree of formality. So you usually have to visit a lawyer or make a submission to a registrar or whatever, but without the body of evidence that we've been talking about and say, as of date X, I wish to be known as this particular gender. And that has been introduced around the world. Um, people who are supportive of that process say that there's very little evidence to show it causes a problem. People who are not supportive of it say it increases the risk, particularly to women and girls, because bad actors will take, they say, advantage of that. Um, query how much evidence there is to support that, but that's that's the debate. Scotland formed a view that it wished to go down that particular route, and it passed uh, just before Christmas a Scottish Act that would have made that change in Scotland. The UK government has resisted that, and Scotland is now judicially having that intervention by the UK government judicially reviewed. Uh, and the UK government says that it would adversely affect the way the Equality Act works across the whole of the UK. The Scottish government says not, and we'll have a clash about that in court. Now, my personal view 
uh, is that I got to the point at the end of my transition where I was ready to apply for a gender recognition certificate. But just at that moment, the Theresa May government was actually proposing self-ID for the whole of the UK. And that only failed. Um, so Theresa May obviously wasn't the most successful PM that we've had, although we've had some even less successful ones since. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the current government seems to have set a low bar and it keeps getting lower and lower. Um, but at the end of the Theresa May government, we there were a few things rapidly enacted. One of those might have been self-ID, but that didn't occur. Subsequently, there has been some public consultation that says that the public support that. Now, my personal view is that I find it personally rather offensive to say that I would have to submit myself to a panel. Am I trans enough to be recognised? If, you if you're gay, you don't have to submit yourself to a panel to say whether you're gay or not, gay enough. And I was looking forward, rather like those same-sex couples who were the first people on the steps of registra registrars when um, same-sex marriage was legalised in the UK and brought it brought within the law in the UK. Um, there were people who sort of camped out in front of the registrar's office to be the first people up the steps in various places. I was sort of hoping to do that in terms of self-IDs. I stepped back from filling in the forms for a gender recognition certificate and was hopeful that self-ID would come in. And it hasn't, and I haven't gone back to uh, doing that, going through that process formally. It, it, I lived relatively happily without it, although there are certain circumstances in which it would be jolly helpful to have a gender recognition certificate. Um, and my personal view is that why should my my identity not be respected? Why should my view of my identity not be respected? But I understand that there are a proportion of people who say it's such a big change that you should su submit yourself to some form of regulation of that change and just doing it because you say so uh, is not good enough. I think self-ID we've seen has created such um, like a vitriol, I suppose, around this. Um, there's a massive fear of discussing the issue. There's hatred. Um, against the trans community each time a conversation seems to happen um, I suppose a question another question sorry to you is around back to that debate last this week you know did did it feel you were there did it feel as though it was a a good debate in terms of a respectful de debate or do you feel like that you know it could have been more appropriate in the way people were, were treating each other? Well, I think there was a lot of personal emotion brought into the room. So, um, and a lot of things that were said in favour of the motion. Um, one of the things that trans people find very difficult is being equated with criminals and paedophiles and abusers and certainly some of the people speaking in favor of the motion were making that equivalence you know even by uh, what we tend to see is people who will say trans people should be supported and looked after in society however and then they carry on to make the an equivalent in trans terms of the gay men shouldn't be primary school teachers comment mm. um I, I just think some standing back would be really helpful 
um, I have uh, spent my time over the last 12 years trying to talk to people and explain the world from a trans perspective, perhaps. And there is very clear evidence that the, the view that people take of trans people is very different depending on whether they know one. Uh, because there is an element of trans people being pre being presented as the, the awful spectre, you know, that person hiding behind a door waiting to pounce on somebody, as opposed to the trans person that you know who is just another member of society wanting to get on with their life, which is the, true of nine, 999 trans people out of a 1,000, in just the same way that there are female criminals or criminals from ethnic minorities, male criminals, Fine, there are trans criminals, but we don't define a group by what tiny numbers within a group do. You know, we don't say um, we, we've an MP, for example, who we've we've had MPs recently who have um, certainly been accused and some have, have admitted sexual misconduct, for example. So we don't suddenly treat all MPs as dangerous people from whom we need to keep away vulnerable people. We don't do it that way around. And I think trans people find it very hard to be, at the moment, being attacked in that way, which isn't a very bright or intelligent way of dealing with citizens in society. And we, But we seem to have to work through that with every protected group, with um, you know people from ethnic minorities, gay people, people with different sexual orientations. We, we've done all of that um, with other groups, yet we don't seem to be learning that at the moment. And re-looking at, um, at the debate from Monday, one of the things that came through time and time again was that um, it feels as though the rights of women are being taken away for the trans community. It, it, that, 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 that's the over overwhelming thing that I kind of see and hear and from that if you know when I when I when I watched it what where is that where is that coming from is that like you say is that yeah what's feeding that I suppose and what's the what is that concern well in the same way that um, a member of um uh, when I was junior as a lawyer I used to do junior criminal defense right? and I don't do that anymore and I would go to court for black clients who said that's our interaction with the police a policeman comes and we run away you know and, and that's that was their interaction with the police and there are women who say we are scared by the fact that there's any element of maleness in a space that we're going to use and that's a genuine feeling by some women now i on the other hand have a very large number of female friends who are completely accepting natal female friends who are completely accepting of my presence in female spaces who are not threatened by me but perhaps they've had the opportunity to know me um if i could if i could wave my edi magic wand <laughs> we'd, we'd all like to have an edi magic wand wouldn't we sometimes yeah, definitely it would be to allow people to know trans people and to know that they're not that threat that people think they are and that that it's not a first step to dealing with the male threat to female people to eliminate trans people either from the world or from their space that there are better things to focus on and concentrate on in terms of supporting women and girls and ensuring that 
violence against women and girls is dealt with seriously and properly, uh, you know, the, the, the prosecution rate for rape, for example, is minuscule at the moment. And the, that's shocking in society and, and shouldn't be such. And there, there's much more that can be done in all sorts of ways to positively affect the position of women and girls in society to improve that. I try and do that. I, I spend a lot of time with law students at the moment, and I'd always be as encouraging of any law student. And the number of female law students goes up all the time at the moment. So there's so much that can be done that's positive. Stamping on trans people really isn't going to help that much because there aren't thousands of us um, in, you know, we don't fill up busloads of us uh, in the community and there are much better things that could be done, done to improve the position of women and girls, I think, than this particular focus. So with that in mind, um, the, the debate happened. Uh, that was Monday. Um, we've, you know, we've, 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 we're almost at recording. If you were, we're about five days, four or five days later. I've lost track of my own time here. Um, what happens next? Well, the, I, I talked about the party spokesman. So the, the, the last response to the debate was from um, the minister who gave one of those fairly typical minister responses, which summed up the wonderful things that the government has done um, in various areas, promised to take matters away and look at it, promised to come back with proposals, but not with any, not anytime soon. So I don't actually see that, as is often the case with the government, with the, the 100,000 equals a debate petitions, it's an expression of view in society that no doubt movers and shakers will think about. But I don't expect to see anything rapid from government at the moment. But this government, I think, we think we have to have a general election by January 2025, as I understand it. So we've got about 18 months left to make a really significant change to equality legislation, I think is not a, a road the current government want to go down. I think it would open such a can of worms that, um, yes, there might be quick and easy ways of achieving what the petitioners wanted, but I think the can of worms it would open would be so large, and especially against the background of having the Section 35 argument with the Scottish Parliament, for example, at the same time. I think the government's got quite a lot on its plate at the moment. And I'm not sure this is an issue which they're going to want to tackle as part of this government. Sure. Query, therefore, what happens after a general election? And I, I know a lot of people would make an assumption currently about what the result of that general election is likely to be. And query whether a Labour-led government, remembering that Labour were the party that introduced the 2000... That, that took the 2010 Equality Act through Parliament, sure. whether Labour would be more supportive of things like self-ID. But equally, it, uh, the country's not having the best of times at the moment, and maybe the Labour government would have a different, a stronger focus in other areas, the economic health of the country. So whether there's likely to be much change under a Labour government, much movement in any direction, either in the direction that petition one promoters would have liked or towards self-ID, I think will be interesting to see when we get that change of government. But I 
my prediction is certainly no change until then. That brings us to um, to an, our last piece uh, that we ask of all guests, but actually um, it does link in really nicely to what you were just saying, because we say inclusion's an action, so do something. So if we're saying the government are going to do nothing, let's, let's us all do something. Um, what would be your top tip or inclusive action that you'd want to share for our listeners? So if they're listening to you, um, maybe the things that you've, you've said about the, the, the panel debates that happened earlier this week or, or your own previous experience, what, what would you like to share with our listeners as a top tip? I think I had an upbringing that was very diverse, that, that meant that I met a very wide range of people at an early age. And that helped me understand that people could be very different, but actually they're all the same. And to make some effort to meet a, a more diverse group of people, think about your circle of friends, your group of people, the people who uh, you meet in business or the people who you meet through your trade union or whatever. Um, who do you not include who's not in that group and reach out and find a way to include in your learning the experience of groups that you don't um you don't know well i did that a few years ago in terms of religion i started to do some cases that were related to religious belief and although long ago i decided i was an atheist in fact at half an hour to going to church time one Sunday morning, age 10, I, I decided that, uh, which made for a really interesting Sunday, which we might talk <laughs> about another time. But I realised that I didn't know that much about other religions, and I worked hard, in fact, to, to learn a bit and educate myself and educate myself in terms of other traditions. And I found that really interesting, and I found some real positives from the way in which other people conduct themselves and work in society and so to reach out to to do a little self-check and reach out and think what do i don't know which are the big gaps in my knowledge and actually filling those gaps can be exciting and fascinating uh, to have attended in that case in my example to have attended uh, a meeting at the synagogue at a Sikh temple for example um and, and to be welcomed when i reached out and did that has really enhanced my life. It, it's not going to convince me not to be an atheist, but it gives me such a, a deeper understanding of people whose life experiences are completely different from mine. That's a great, a great top tip. Um, Robin, thank you so much. I appreciate you've probably had a very busy couple of weeks, um, day job and and briefing MPs and everything else that's been happening for you. So thank you so much for joining us. We really have um appreciated having you and really enjoyed the discussion don't about yourself dr julie absolutely it was a pleasure to meet you i'm sorry i can't be um in sunny london with you although our uh, recording studio is less greenhouse today um it's a little bit cooler so the one day you're not with us i've been i've been pr pruning the tomatoes in the background while we've been talking <laughs> save me some please <laughs> You can find us on Twitter. Our handles are in the show notes below. And if you've liked what you've heard, please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically. Thanks for listening.